2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. We're going to be looking today at verses uh, 5 to 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. This is what the Word of the Lord says. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Let's pray one more time together. Father, we simply come before you and we tell you that we love you. Father, we are so grateful for your sovereign grace that you have so graciously lavished upon us in your Son, in the Beloved. And Lord, we're so grateful for your grace abounding to us even in a context like this where there is sin, where there is discipline, where there is a need for correction and chastisement. But Lord, even in in this passage, we see so much of your love, so much of your mercy, so much of your compassion, Lord, that we are overwhelmed, Lord, that you deal with us in such a way. And Father, I just pray today that you would bless your word. I pray for your people. Lord, I pray for all people here, visitors, those who are in Christ, those who are yet in need of Christ. May your word accomplish many things among us. Father, we thank you that your word is sufficient for these things because certainly, Lord, we are not. We are not adequate for these things. And so, God, we're grateful for your all-sufficient word that it can do all of these marvelous things for our good and for your glory. We We just ask, Lord, that you would bless our time in your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've entitled this message today, and oh yes, I should acknowledge that uh, yesterday I was like a kid in a candy store. Our pulpit was finally made, and no longer am I bound to the whimsical ways of the music stand, Uh, but I feel like a real preacher now in a real church, and uh, (laughs) it's just a blessing to to have a pulpit that I can... It's a sturdy one, too, so you might hear me do that once in a while uh, as we get going. I made sure that it could take, you know, a little pounding uh, in the pulpit, so... uh, But I'm, I'm, I'm so, uh, I'm so uh, blessed to have, uh, to have a pulpit. Praise the Lord. I uh, didn't know they were going to be able to finish it in time for this, this service, and I'm glad that they did. Uh, but um, looking at this passage, really, this is, the, this is the sermon title that I gave it. Sin, compassion, and conquering the devil through church discipline. Sin, compassion, and conquering the devil through church discipline. Uh, that's really what this whole passage is about. 
uh, it sort of comes to a head here. We've, we've saw just sort of intimations of it, clues and little hints that there is some sorely, uh, there, there are some problems that are sorely wrong with this church at the moment, right? I mean, we, we hear about Paul and uh, the, the sort of struggle that he's having with the Corinthians at the moment. He's trying to sort of gain them back to his side. And what has caused the rift is uh, a challenge to Paul's authority. Well, in this passage, we sort of come face to face with the opponent of Paul, what has been called by many scholars Paul's opponent, the one who is directly responsible for causing him sorrow as far as all of that is concerned. And so now we get sort of a glimpse into what was going on there at Corinth, what transpired, and uh, what the Apostle Paul has to say about it. It is the context of church discipline. Now, I want you to see several things from this passage, all having to do with discipline, and uh, they're all important. Number one, what I would call the conditions for church discipline. The conditions for church discipline. You know that in order for there to be a legitimate disciplinary uh, case in the church, in order for church discipline to be executed in the church, there must be the proper conditions that call for it. Now, let's read verse 5 again, because I think embedded here are these apparent conditions. And then throughout, you see the various steps of church discipline take place. But he says, But if anyone has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. And I just want to point out that whenever there is sin in the camp, you could say, whenever there is a call for church discipline, two things will be true. The sin, the offense, will be an offense not just to one individual person, but also for, for the whole church. Notice, the sin is really caused, or it is against Paul himself. And that is sort of underlying in the words there, he caused sorrow not to me, though of course he did. Paul is not saying here, look, that he was not wronged. Indeed, he was wronged. According to verse 10, he makes that very plain. But really what this text is emphasizing is how the sin affected the whole church. And so that any time there is a a sin in a church, it affects not just the leadership of the church, but the whole congregation is affected. Not just the person who is directly uh, involved in the transgression, but the whole body then is, uh, is sort of influenced by the leaven of sin. That condition is going to be there. But really what's amazing about this text is how Paul handles the matter. He has a certain design for all of this. He's not giving us so much a play-by-play, what is church discipline, how does it work, what are the various steps of church discipline. That's found in Matthew chapter 18. Here we see uh, in a, a very important part of church discipline, and that is what we could call the ultimate goal of church discipline, which we will see. Now, I want you to see that even from the very get-go here. Notice what Paul says. He says, but if anyone has caused sorrow, and that that phrase there certainly is a sort of a rhetorical statement. Of course, there was an offender, so he's speaking rhetorically. But he says here, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much. Now, when he says, in order not to say too much, various translations have sort of grappled with that statement because it's kind of tricky. It actually comes from one Greek word, which means to burden, to burden. And 
in the context in which it's found, it can be, an, it, it could be translated not to exaggerate or not to exploit the matters under question. You see, we get something of the civic attitude that Paul had even in the midst of church discipline. We see something of the environment that Paul is sort of bringing to this issue. It's not, as we'll see, it's not a pursuit of excessive sorrow. It is not a pursuit of pain. We saw that before last week as we saw what Paul's heart for the church really was. That is for the joy of the church. Church discipline is not a pursuit of pain. That is not an end in and of itself. Sure, sorrow is inflicted. Sure, as we'll find out here, there is a punishment that is inflicted, but that is not an end in itself. That's what Paul is trying to get across. He's saying here, not to put it too severely. He doesn't want to exasperate the language of church discipline, but he wants to simply point out to them that this issue has had, if you would, kind of a boomerang effect on the church. Paul's saying, look, I'm not even here talking about my own interests, my own, uh, my own pride, my own reputation. Isn't it easy to do that when you get offended? It's all about me, how I was hurt, how this affects me. But notice Paul is very quick to shift the focus away from the offense that was leveled at him and to talk about the effects that it has on the church. Because you see, brothers and sisters, in church discipline, the ultimate or optimum goal is the purity of the church. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there with the, the brother that was caught in sexual immorality, the incestuous brother of 1 Corinthians 5, who is disciplined. And Paul says, purge the leaven out. Get rid of the leaven. In other words, get rid of the influence that can destroy and can permeate the entire church. These sort of elements are therefore all present. But judging from Paul's words here, there is this hesitancy. And the hesitancy is twofold. It is not just a concern for the church, but as we're going to see next, it, can also, it is also driven out of a concern for the, the person who is heir, the sinning brother. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So these elements of church discipline seem to be present in all disciplinary cases. And quickly, let me just kind of sort of brush over those, okay? There is obviously an offense, according to Matthew 18, 15. There's an offended party, according to the same verse. And there is also a disregard for church leadership, which is what this verse is saying. There's a disregard for the church. And you can see that in uh, Titus, for example. Titus chapter 2, verse 15, that we are not to disregard our leaders. Well, that's exactly what someone under church discipline does. They, dis they disregard the voice of the church so that when a, a disciplinary issue progresses and you tell it to the church and they refuse to, to listen even to the church, what's involved there, brothers and sisters, is a rebellion, not just against one person, but against the entire church. Against the entire church. So there are repeated warnings, and no doubt this church went through the proper steps of executing this sort of church discipline. But as I said, there is more to church discipline than just punishment. There are what I would call, and I think what more the focus of this text is, the limitations of church discipline. So not only are there conditions that call for church discipline, sinning against a particular individual, 
rejecting the authority of the church, rejecting the authority of the elders. But there are also, involved in church discipline, there is also limitations to discipline. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. He says, Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So there are several instances in the letter, 2 Corinthians, where Paul shows that he is grateful now for the church sort of coming back on his side, and this is evidence of that. They have done what Paul probably requested that they do when he wrote to them what is known as the severe letter, the letter that was written in between 1 and 2 Corinthians that seemingly was written with such a, a force and such a rebukative tone that it caused great sorrow in the church. Apparently, they became obedient to Paul once again. And for that, that's great. But Paul here is after another test of obedience. You can see that as he goes on later in verse 9 to say, to say, look, he says, the reason I wrote to you was to put you to the test to see if you're obedient in all things. That is what he is after. <clears throat> this is uh, clear evidence, therefore, that they did in fact follow through with Paul's initial request uh, to deal with such a one, to handle the offender. But notice he says that the punishment was sufficient. And I want to point out two things that church discipline is and that church discipline is not. Church discipline is just that. It is discipline. But it is not church abuse. It is not church abuse. Paul begins and he insists with this very thing when he says that there comes a point in time where the punishment has reached its goal so that it is no longer necessary. He says sufficient. The word is adequate. It is enough. The punishment that was afflicted by the majority, that is, by the majority of the church, by the majority of the members of, 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 of the church of Corinth, the, 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 the punishment that they rendered was enough. It was sufficient. It apparently had its work. It did its work. It accomplished the work that uh, church discipline is supposed to accomplish. You know, Most churches today don't even practice church discipline. They don't believe in it. They don't trust in it. They don't think it works. They don't think it's any good. As I told you last week, I've had several Christians even, professing Christians, say we would never discipline anybody for anything. We wouldn't discipline. We wouldn't, that, why would you scare somebody away from the church like that? That's just going to turn them off to God and to Christianity. Well, my friends, listen. The Word of God calls for church discipline, and that's why we have to do it. And if you're to be a true church, and I do believe the Reformers got it right, this is, a, this is a critical element for any true church, that it is uh, willing to stand on the authority of the Word of God and is willing to be obedient even to the call to engage in church discipline. The Reformers taught that in order to have a true church, there must be a proper articulation of the gospel, there has to be a proper execution of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and there must be church discipline. My friends, an ungodly church is not a church. It's a charade. It's a circus. It's a community club. It's just a gathering of social networking and socializing. 
Well, if you wanted just to socialize, I mean, you could stay home and get on Facebook. But the church is the only institution where Christ has put his authority, his own invested authority, only resides in the church. And when the church acts according to Christ's authority, as we're going to see from this very passage, Jesus brings his affirmation to that church in the midst of that authority and in the midst of their decision-making. But notice what Paul says there in verse 6. He says, Sufficient is the one, uh, for, for such a one, is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Now, he uses forensic language here because that's what's at stake at, you know, in a church discipline case. That's what it is. It is it's a, it's a judicial matter. It's a matter that should be judged judiciously in the church. And there is a process, and there is a judgment, and there is a rendering. These are all forensic terms. But this is a, but notice the, the specificity. There is a specific offender. You have to be able to isolate the offense, the offender, and then there's a specific punishment that is what, whatever Scripture calls for, even to the extent of excommunication. So that what's going on here is a controlled environment of disciplinary uh, measures. It is not an uncontrollable rash. You don't lash out in church discipline. Church discipline, not church abuse. We don't have the right, uh, because of Scripture or anything in Scripture or any authority that we have, to abuse anyone in the church. It is church discipline. It is not church Abuse. When someone suffers abuse, they suffer abuse as a result of some sort of planned cruelty or some sort of uncontrolled evil, like an outburst of wrath or some sort of senseless violence. But in church discipline, my friends, there is a proper progress or a proper progression to it. There is a process and there is a purpose. The next thing is that church discipline is not church politics. I love this because it really guards against our, the, our hearts that can so easily tend towards becoming political, towards becoming partial, towards becoming a favor to one group or another. Paul stresses here the need not just to render punishment, but once the punishment has been rightly inflicted by the church, look at verse 7. He goes on to say, On the contrary, he says, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So that Paul calls here for three things. Forgiveness, compassion, and care. This is all part of the restoration process. It seemingly, uh, it appears anyway, that this man, whoever he was, whoever this person was, did in fact repent. He did, in fact, get right with God. He was on the road to restoration, and now what's needed is to finish the process. Bring it to its ultimate end now. Bring the brother right back into the fullness of fellowship. Give him full privileges in the membership of the church. Don't withhold from him Christian virtues like love and compassion and forgiveness. As a matter of fact, those types of things will just undo the church altogether. We can't get political. You know what politics is all about. Politics is all about making the other person look bad, right? 
Politics is all about looking superior to somebody else. But that's what, not what Paul is calling for here. What Paul is calling for here is a biblical, spiritual, heartfelt restoration, forgiveness, comfort, and care. By calling them to forgive, he is protecting the church from the rottenness of bitterness and resentment. By calling them to comfort, he is calling them to be transparent, to be compassionate, to be gentle. Just like he says in Galatians chapter 6, which I will read to you in a moment. And by calling them to care for his sorrow, the apostle is guarding them from exploiting the sin of this brother for personal ends, for whatever political ends they thought to do. But no, brothers and sisters, Paul entrusts or he ensures the spiritual restoration of this offender. And you know, that's the way it should be. That upon repentance, we should not hesitate to forgive a brother or a sister who has erred, who has sinned against us. Our spouses, our children, our fellow members, anyone who uh, repents, we should automatically welcome right back into our favor, keeping in mind that you too were forgiven so, so much. But by ensuring this guy's restoration, the Apostle Paul is guarding the church from gossip, guarding the church from slander, and guarding the church from hypocrisy. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says that we ought to love without hypocrisy, without hypocrisy. So if there's a restored member of the church, we are to receive them all the way back to where they were. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Listen to these words here. He says, brethren, he says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Amazing how the Apostle Paul here ties it into the law of Christ. He's not just saying the law, period. But I think by the law of Christ, he means much more than just simply do not lie. The law of Christ goes further. Not only do not lie, but be sincere. Not only do not lie to one another, but tell the truth, speak the truth in love. It's not just don't steal. It's be generous. It's not just don't commit idolatry. It's worship the Lord alone. Love the Lord Jesus Christ. You get the point. The law of Christ propels us to do, not just not to do. And then the third thing I want to point out here is the aim of church discipline. Of course, we're already talking about it in a sense, but there's sort of a twofold aim here, so I have to get to both sides. Look at verses 8 and 9. Sort of gives us more of the goal of church discipline all together, especially as it relates to what Paul's trying to do here. He says, Wherefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all 
things. Whether you So by forgiving, by comforting, by seeking the good of this offender, the church will show their love to him and show their obedience to, the op, to, to, to Paul, to the apostles, and to the apostolic message. And although the church may have followed the guidelines of church discipline, uh, and though they may have done that well, Paul is saying you need to now follow all the way through with this. And you cannot, you cannot retain your love from this person. Isn't it challenging? And I think sometimes that might be even the more challenging aspect of church discipline. It's not so much uh, identifying sin and ca- crying down sin and punishing sin, but upon repentance to know that you are now called to love and reaffirm and re-embrace a once sinning and erring brother or sister. That could be just as challenging, if not more challenging. Sometimes it's just much more challenging to forgive. But look at the language. He says here, I urge you. It's an exhortation. He says, I urge you to reaffirm. To reaffirm. It's interesting, but that this word reaffirm is also a forensic term. And what Paul is calling them to do, as this term implies in different texts, especially outside of the New Testament, is that they should render the final judgment of the case, which is restoration. In other words, the case is not closed until you can fully reaffirm a repentant brother or sister again. Then the case is closed. Then the circle is complete. Then you have done what Christ commanded. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, he says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, what what does he say? You have won your brother. Isn't that beautiful? You have won your brother. Not, you can put up with him again. (laughs) No. You know, you you can say hi to him. You can be real short with him at church again. No, you have won not just a friend. You have won not just an associate, not just a fellow member. You have won your brother. He is your brother in Christ. And as your brother in Christ, he is deserving of all of your love and all of your affection once again. This sort of radical forgiveness is rooted in the fact that God, brothers and sisters, has shown us infinite forgiveness, right? We need only to ponder the truth of the gospel to be able to do this sort of thing. To be able to forgive somebody who has offended us greatly, caused great harm to us, caused harm to our reputation, to our family, to our ministry, to our church. It takes great compassion. It takes a radical, supernatural, unnatural type of love for that type of a person. I love what Jesus said here about failing to forgive and how disastrous unforgiveness is. You remember Jesus, he tells this, uh, he tells the story, he tells the parable rather of the, the wicked servant who after he'd been forgiven by the king, he refused, once he was put in that same position where he had to forgive one of his servants, he refused to do it. He refused to forgive in a similar way, the debts that were forgiven to him. And that king got a hold of him one more time, and this is what he says. 
Should, should you not also, this is Matthew 18, this is right after his whole section on church discipline, and then he sort of wraps it up with an illustration, with a, with a parable. He says, should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And this Lord, moved with anger, had him handed him over to the torturers until he should pay all that, he was, that, that, that was owed him. My, and this is the terrifying aspect of it here, verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Because that is the way that God forgave you from his heart. He doesn't remember your sin. He cast it away as far as the east is to the, from the west. The bottom of the sea, your sin is gone. Your offenses are gone. Should God desire to recall any one of your sins or any one of your offenses at any moment in time, He could easily damn you to oblivion. But He doesn't do that. And what an amazing concept that God genuinely, from His heart, forgives us. That's just remarkable. If that example in the gospel does not propel you, if it doesn't constrain, if it doesn't compel you to show love, forgiveness, and compassion to others, then you don't know the gospel. Because that is what the gospel is all about giving grace to those who do not deserve it. That brother, that sister that caused harm to Paul, they deserve to be damned. They deserve to be dealt with as harshly as possible. And they don't deserve the final step in the process. It is a grace to be restored to fellowship again. Just like it is a grace to be restored to fellowship with God again. It is a grace. And so Jesus taught this lesson to His disciples because they simply didn't get it. You remember Peter, he asked Jesus right before that, how often am I to forgive my brother? Who's offended me? Seven times a day? Jesus says, no, it's more like 70 times seven. If you're not, listen, if you're not happy to be in the business of forgiveness, you're not going to be a happy Christian. Because as a Christian, you're in the business of forgiving people all the time. You've got to forgive your husband. You've got to forgive your wife. You've got to forgive your children. You've got to forgive your fellow church members when they're short with you, when they're not having a, long, a good day, when they've just you know, drove on the freeway from Fort Worth to Frisco and they're not in a good mood. You're going to have to forgive them. You're going to have to look over many trespasses. The Bible says that's the glory of a, of a righteous man to do that, to look over a transgression in that way. So, it is not just enough to punish, but we also have to forgive and that can prove to be equally difficult. Therefore, that is why Paul wrote to them. Because he knows, left to themselves, left without his guidance, they might be tempted to hold resentment, to hold unforgiveness, to be resentful for the things that that individual did to Paul, whatever it was. We just know generally he undermined his apostolic authority. And there might be those people in the fellowship who are real dear and near to Paul, who really love Paul and are really committed to Paul's authority, who are just tempted to think, wow, look at this brother. Could he do it again? Those are the types of things that will mess with you in your head. 
Yes, I'll forgive him. Yes, I'll forgive her. But could they do it again? Listen, forgiveness does not reproach. Forgiveness does not hold on to things like that. You must, from the heart, genuinely let go. You have to let go. And this is the very test that he is putting them on. He is testing them. The word is to try. The word means to try to find the genuineness, the proven character of something through testing. Okay? And Paul tests them on various levels. He'll test them again as far as their, their money, their finances. He'll talk to them again as far as the Jerusalem collection. And he will test them on that matter too. Listen to what he says later in 2 Corinthians 9.13. He says, Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. It was a test. The Jerusalem collection was a test as to their obedience. Paul is after their reputation Paul wants them to be a pure church and he wants them to have a good repute because his reputation is inextricably linked to their reputation. He says in 2 Corinthians 8.24, Therefore, only before the churches show them and prove your love. That's amazing. And our reason for boasting about you. Prove your love. Have a, have a church. Have a reputation that precedes itself so that people know why we boast so much about you. He'll go on to say in chapter 7, verse 15, he says, His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, speaking about Titus, how you received him with fear and with trembling. This church was constantly being tested on things, and every church is, and may God give us the grace to pass many, many tests here at Heritage Grace. A pure church is an obedient church. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, because I want to capitalize on that word obedience, sort of isolate that word, because I think it is sorely missing today in the world. People don't like to obey. If anything, people like to disobey. People like to rebel. People hate authority. They hate institutional religion. They hate the church. They hate pastors. They hate the police. They hate the government. You see it all over, right? I mean, I was just amazed the other day. I read an article on Occupy Wall Street movement. Okay, these, uh, these hippies that like to stay the night in tents out in the middle of the street and block traffic. It was amazing. I, couldn't, I almost couldn't read the article. It was talking about the things that they did in defiance to the police, throwing, uh, throwing feces and urine at them and defecating in the middle of the street. And I mean, things that were just abominable. And all these people think that they're doing something hip and cool. Anarchy is in vogue today, brothers and sisters. People don't like to submit to the authority of the church. People don't like to submit to the authority of the government. People don't like to submit in the home to the authority of parents. Wives do not like to submit to the authority of their husbands. Obedience is huge. It's crucial. But let me say this, that if you are a Christian, you're a person under authority. It's authority everywhere. And you're called to the highest level of submission. 
the highest possible level so that at work people see the difference that you submit to the authority of your master in a way that, oh, they would never. He's not worth it. You see the way he talks about us? But you're obeying not because of the person, the human being, the master himself. You're obeying obeying because you know that your ultimate authority is God. And that's the only way it will work. That's the only way, as Paul says, that children are going to be obedient to their parents if they understand that their obedience is ultimately under the ultimate authority of God. Wives will never submit to their husbands unless they understand that their submission to their husbands is directly linked to how they submit to God. And so on and so forth. Let me just give you a sample of this so that you don't think I'm overstating the fact. I had to stop after a while tracing the Scriptures everywhere where submission and obedience and authority are all sort of linked together. But we are told to submit to one another. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. We are told to submit to our elders. 1 Peter 5, 5 and Hebrews 13, 7. Elders are to be in subjection to the Word of God and to the church. 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 14, we are to be in subjection to the civil authorities. Titus 3, Romans 13, we are to be, uh, and Christ was submitted ultimately to the Father, and He's our example. It's just a life of submission, a life of obedience. I love it. This is what obedience of faith looks like. I had you turn to Romans chapter 1, and then I went on a tirade, sorry. But I wanted to prove to you that this is the mission of the church. This is God's mission, is to bring people into subjection to His authority. He says, the Apostle Paul, speaking about his own apostleship, he received it not from man but from God. And he says in verse 5, through whom, through Jesus Christ, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all of the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So you see there, it is a universal call. It is timeless. We never stop obeying God's authority. We are saved for the purpose of having our wills subdued. Romans 15.25 says the same thing. Now to Him who is able to establish you according to My Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for ages past. Wow, that's a huge parenthetical sort of setup, right? Verse 26. But now is manifested by the Scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. And He has made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. We are dominated and marked by obedience. Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, that they became obedient to the pattern of doctrine that they had received. And this is a lifelong endeavor. We never stop having our wills subdued. And it just brings a major concern, doesn't it? The higher the, higher the rebellion, the greater the consequences. The more you refuse to submit to authority, depending on who and where and why, the greater consequences you will face. So I have concluded that God saves us to subdue us. And if our wills are not subdued, 
If our wills are not subject to Christ's lordship, we are not saved. If you are still the Lord of your life, then guess what? You're the Lord of your life. And you have no other. You have no other Lord next to you. Because Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You can't have two lords. Christ must be supreme in your heart. His authority is the only authority that matters. Everything flows out of that. Now, we got to move on quickly to the fourth thing that I wanted to point out because it's really important. And that is this. The next point is the wisdom that we gain in church discipline or the wisdom that we should have in church discipline. Now, there can be no wisdom if we don't have this type of absolute, uh, unmitigated obedience and submission to the will of God. But look at verses 10 and 11. 10 and 11 says, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, and that I think is just Paul sort of downplaying his personal offense in the matter, he says, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes." So now Paul sort of returns back to the idea of forgiveness, back to the theme of forgiveness, and he starts by uh, uh, making it very clear, insisting that he has forgiven. He is ready to, to move on. He has genuinely, from the heart, as he said, he has genuinely forgiven, and he is taking no more personal interest in the offense. He has forgiven. And he says that he is ready to stand with the judgment of the church, even though he's absent from the church. He says, look, even though I'm not physically there, he says, Christ is present and he is ready to stand with the judgment of the church. He says, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And that's an interesting, interesting construct because it literally means that Christ is there not only to testify to the validity of this case, but also to bring his approval for it, to bring his approval for their actions, for the case, for the judgment that has been rendered. See, church discipline is done with the wisdom of the long view. That's what Paul had. He had the wisdom of the long view. He had their best interest in mind. He was ready to, he was ready to do this because he wanted a pure church. He wanted them to be pure He was concerned for their interests, for their advantage. And, amazingly, also, the wisdom of church discipline is is aware of Satan's schemes. He says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. That's amazing. That tells us so many things, but one thing it tells us absolutely is that Satan has an interest in the church. Satan is involved in the discipline process of a church. He is present wherever any sin is present. He is at work. 
And you don't have to doubt that the Word of God is teaching this very thing, but that Satan himself is at the very bottom of all sin in the church, using it, guiding it, manipulating it, using it as a tool to bring a wedge of division in the church and to upset the unity of the church. Wherever there is a sinning heir or wherever there is a sinning member in the church, a real devil stands behind it. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are not ignorant of his schemes. Oh, it's absolutely true. Satan is not omniscient. Satan is not omniscient, so I don't believe in blaming Satan for everything. I was in a car once where a gentleman was trying to blame Satan that we got stuck at a red light. It's the devil making us late. And he was absolutely serious about that. I go, well, I don't really know if Satan is you know, giving a little too much authority to Satan. Don't you think he's controlling the traffic lights? No, it's not that sort of paranoia. Uh, it's not that sort of attributing to Satan the attributes of God. You know, a lot of people do that. They act as if Satan knows everything. Satan is everywhere at all times, and Satan can do anything. No, obviously, Satan is on a short leash. He is under God's authority. He does his bidding. But listen to what John MacArthur says about this. He says, Satan's goal for the church is the opposite of God's. God wants a humble, merciful, joyful, loving, obedient fellowship. Satan wants one where sin reigns supreme. If sin is confronted, Satan wants it done in a harsh, graceless, and merciless manner. But failing to deal with sin and failing to forgive repentant sinners can both destroy a church. That's right. This is Satan taking any advantage. He feels like he had done his job by getting this one brother to sin in the way that he did. And now that that has been dealt with seemingly, now he's working in the church to try to get the church to be this domineering, lording over, harsh, merciless, sort of dictatorial place where people get spiritually abused so that they can get embittered at God and never return back through the doors of a church because they don't like the way they were treated. And oftentimes they weren't treated right. That is some of the hardest stuff to deal with, to counsel, to talk people through when there has been genuine spiritual abuse. It's horrible. It's terrible. But there is healing. There is restoration even in the midst of that. But listen, I want to alert us today to the theology of Satan. Because now in our own day, we live in a very anti-supernatural, naturalistic, evolutionary sort of worldview, postmodern worldview that views the Satan of the Bible as a mythological creature that goes right along with Zeus and you know all the Greek mythological gods. But my friends, Satan is real and we will remain ignorant if we do not have a proper view of Satan's and demonology and his influencing power. What did Paul or excuse me, what did Peter say about this very thing? He says that Satan, not only is he a powerful thinker, but he's also a powerful hunter. First Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. As I started tracing the history of redemption, I saw Satan's influence throughout. You see him at the very beginning of the garden. You see him in the life of the patriarchs, getting them to sin, getting them to lie, getting them to compromise the promise. 
You see him in the life of Job. You see Satan in the life of David. You see Satan in the New Testament hunting after Peter, seeking to sift him like wheat. You see him afflicting Paul with the thorn of flesh. You see that he lurks around everywhere. And as Peter calls him here, the adversary, Revelation says this adversary is accusing us day and night before God. Accusing us of our sin. Accusing us of our shortcomings. Accusing us of our faithlessness. Accusing us of everything that we do that's contrary to God's glory. He, he hunts after pastors. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 say that a pastor can fall into the snare of the devil. He hunts all believers everywhere. And in order to conquer the devil, we must have a sobriety. We must be informed, not ignorant. We have to put on the armor of God, as Paul says. We need to be vigilant in prayer, like Peter says. We need to constantly look to Jesus to be our advocate as Satan is condemning and accusing and riling against you. Where else are you going to look? Your good deeds? A pattern of behavior? Look to Christ, brothers and sisters. Look to His intercessory work. Look to Him as your meteor, your advocate before the Father, 1 John 3, 8. And Paul ties all this together with this situation at hand and this church disciplinary situation. The way to beat the devil in these kind of moments in the life of a church when there's discipline, and oh, I've been there before, some of you have been there before, warfare is at an all-time high at that time. Warfare is at an all-time high in the midst of a disciplinary uh, season of a church where extra vigilance has to be taken place. But in the midst of this context, Paul is saying the way to defeat the devil is through forgiveness. Can I just say it this way? The way to defeat the devil is by walking in step with the gospel because the gospel will give us the proper love the, the gospel will give us the proper holiness. The, the gospel will give us the proper compassion. And it is through the power of the gospel that the Spirit will empower us to defeat the flesh and the devil. Amen? Let's pray. Hmm. Well, Heavenly Father, I am so grateful and I celebrate the reality and the fact that Jesus Christ, according to 1 John 3, 9, 1 John 3, 8, has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Father, we are not ignorant of his schemes. But Lord, we are also not as wise as we might think. Father, I pray that we would perish any preconceived notion of a devil with horns and a long red tail, a mythological creature that is no more harmful than the animation that we see in movies. But God, we know that He is a being, that He is a fallen reprobate angel, that He is condemned, and that He is destined to be damned, and that He is seeking those whom He can devour and so, Father, please help us to put on the helmet of salvation. Help us to be discerning, 
to see through the lies of the enemy, to see past one another's faults on the way to compassion. Father, I pray that we at our church would always be ready to do battle with the devil by living our lives in conformity to the gospel. Satan cannot endure gospel obedience. And so, Father, we pray, strengthen our hearts to obey your word, to obey all of your precepts. We thank you and we bless you in Christ's name. Amen.